Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. An exciting episode. We have a lot of stuff coming up. Dr. Andy Yin um, has made a blog post this week about some misinformation that is going around the internet. We're going to talk about that and cover it. Also, we've got a uh, some news on the Pine Phone. We finally have some leaked pictures and some information uh, about the Pine Phone. It's a very exciting device, especially for people like me who are looking for alternatives to Android and iOS. Pine has also taken the extra step to close the gap, the technology divide, and so people in less fortunate countries still will be able to take uh, we'll be able to participate in the growing success of technology. Purism uh, has, well, there's a there's a story there that we'll we'll dig into. Uh, Mumble has had the first release in ten years. Some updates to Telegram and uh, some tips and tricks on how to have encrypted and secure communication. All of that's up right now on the Ask Noah Show. But as always, your calls go to the front of the line. Bryce from South Carolina, you're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Hey Noah, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, you bet. How can I help? Question: I'm looking to add um, security cameras to my home, and obviously um, the easy button now is looking at something like Arlo or Blink, but sure. I'm not comfortable with the cloud storage of the videos. So I'm just kind of curious about your recommendations for a system that will live on my land. I already have Unify Access Point, so I was looking at that system. Yes, but a little concerned about the direction of, of, of Ubiquity with them moving to their appliance and. I'm just curious if, if the devs are going to always be available. So I don't want to really invest in that system if it's not going to be around for the long term. So I kind of wanted to get your, your take on that. Yeah, sure, you bet. So let's start with this. If you want a system that is going to be supported for a long time, what you want is something that's standardized, something that isn't owned by one brand, one company, uh, one entity. And the closest you're going to get to that, um, with IP cameras anyway, is the ONVIF standard. And the ONVIF standard is an open industry standard that provides a standard for interfacing IP-based security cameras with IP-based DVR. So if you were to install something like Blue Cherry DVR or ZoneMinder, you would be able to use any of these uh, various camera manufacturers that support the ONVIF standard. And that's a great way to go. I should probably mention, uh, although I'm guessing you're not considering it, it's worth mentioning that analog cameras still are not out of the question. We still I mean, I don't prefer to do them. I prefer to put an IP-based system in when I can because you get a better picture and it's better resolution and it's better future-proofing and all of that. Um, but there, there is something to be said about the security and unhackability of a closed-circuit um, you know, camera system that isn't on the network, that isn't doing any of the, any of the smart stuff. It's just recording and then dumping to a DVR. You maybe have that on a separate network where you can log in and uh, and extract the footage. The nice thing about the analog system is, again, I just say it to mention it, uh, it does follow a standard. It's an open standard. They, they come with BNC connectors or the RCA connector, but the reality is it's a standard video uh, connector 
or a standard video signal and, and a 12 volt power supply and you have a camera. Um, it, it, your your inclination to go down the ubiquity route is a good one, and to that end, I will tell you that all of the camera installations that we currently do are with the ubiquity systems. The thing that you're finding on the internet and the thing that is causing you some concern, as it probably should, is Unify is abandoning their traditional, what they're calling Unify video in favor of a new system called Unify Protect. Now, we actually talked about that a little bit on the show when Unify first made that announcement because Ubiquity came out and basically said, hey, we appreciate the fact that all of you folks out there have spent all of your time, effort, and money investing in our products because you are do-it-yourselfers and you're looking for the best value. And so we sell you a $180 access point uh, that should cost 1000 bucks, and we sell you a controller. We just give it away as a, as a Debian, essentially a Debian repo. And if you were to buy that exact same thing um, from a competing manufacturer, you would pay a thousand dollars just for the just for the controller alone. Um, so thanks for doing that. By the way, we're going to screw all of you in the self-install industry. And from now on, you will buy Unify Protect through the Cloud Key Two, and it's a totally different system. And that's what we're that's the direction we're going to go down. And there's not going to be a self-install option. And the internet, rightfully so, kind of freaked out and said, "You guys are idiots." The your customer base is people that like to build their own appliances. And frankly, while your NVR is good, it's not perfect. And there are some shortcomings that people like me, who do very large installs with this stuff, have to overcome. The first example is, I'm sure that somebody somewhere in in, in Ubiquity decided that an Atom processor and a 2-terabyte hard drive is more than enough for the average home user or even the average small-to-medium business. And they're probably right. If you have 30 days with the 1080p footage from six or seven cameras, I don't see any problem with that at all. But when you go to do a, a 300 camera install or a 500 camera install or a 700 camera install, all of a sudden that two terabytes of space at 10 with 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 uh, you know with with hundreds of cameras, uh, you know at, at at 1080p, all of a sudden it doesn't seem like it's that high of resolution, and all of a sudden it's not good enough. And so up until now, it's been very easy for us. We go buy a dedicated Dell server, we install Debian on it, we add the PPA, and all of a sudden we have a we have a ZFS array of 10 terabyte Western Digital Reds that are all uh, functioning on ZFS, and on top of that runs the Ubiquity software. So it, it works out because you can work around some of those limitations. So we have had a lot of patience with Ubiquity and said, fine, you're going to force us to use your cameras, you don't offer Pan-Tilt-Zoom, they only work with your controlling software, but... At least it's a really good interface. At least it works 100% of the time, and at least we can install it on a regular distro. And they tried to take one of those things away from us, and they suffered the backlash. In response, what I have seen lately on the forums, this is not an official answer, but what I have seen on the forums and what has been indicated both from Ubiquity employees as well as other people that work in the industry is that Unify plans to eventually release the uh, Unify Protect uh, as a self-install in the future. They haven't given a date. There's not a firm timeline. It's not even official it's not even an official, here is the here is what we have offering today, and here's what we will offer in the future. It's just kind of hearsay, but it's hearsay that ha- that I've seen enough places and, and heard enough times from enough sources within Ubiquity that I'm inclined to believe they're not going to screw over the self-install customer. So that's a really long-winded way, Bryce, of telling you that if, if I were you, I'd follow your inclination to install a Ubiquity system. The nice thing about the Ubiquity system, right, the cameras are encrypted back to the DVR. The DVR is encrypted back to your laptop, and it's with a private key that is generated on the device itself. There's no cloud access. There's no video syncing to any servers. It's all 
on hardware that you own. Ubiquity could cease to exist tomorrow and all of my cameras would work just fine. Now, can you forward a port and or could you set up a VPN so you can log into that system remotely? Yes. Does Ubiquity offer a cloud service that you can tie into your system so you can access some of that stuff remotely? Yes. Uh, it's off by default. They don't expect you to use it. The vast majority of people that I work with don't use it. Um, and it works just fine as a local as a local device. But I, I, I've tried the ONVIF cameras. I've tried the expensive camera systems from Bosch and Panasonic. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't found an interface that I think functions as well as the Ubiquity one. Even if it's not perfect, it's the best out there right now for IP cameras. Well, thanks. That, that really answers my question. I appreciate the time, Noah. Awesome. I appreciate you listening. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us tonight. 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. JJ from Ohio. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Uh, thanks, Noah. Uh, I just have a couple questions. Uh, the first one is I've been running a Proxmox server on uh, ZFS with Linux containers and uh, VMs to do things like NextCloud and Jellyfin mm-hmm. and uh, SyncThing, uh, just basic file sharing for my family. And uh, I want to switch to Docker-like containers. I, I don't particularly want to use Docker because I don't want to deal with the Docker socket and the big sure. demon. But uh, uh, so I was thinking, looking at things like Podman or yes. uh, Cryo or something like that, and I was wondering, uh, should I run... The, uh, is it more secure to run them like like containers in a VM, or is there a good uh, OS where I could uh, or distro I should say to run them uh, on directly on the bare metal, like maybe Ubuntu or even Alpine? So the answer to that question is is both. Uh, are Docker's designed to run securely on bare metal? Yes. Does Red Hat design when they released when they released um, when Rel eight came out? Did they spend a lot of time, effort, and money? designing a system and working with Podman and, and Scopio and all of those things to make sure that containers could run perfectly on bare metal without having to be virtualized? Absolutely. In fact, we are actually seeing containerizations. When I talked to Chris Wright from Red Hat, I asked him point blank, are you running into any problems trying to convince the industry to virtualize your systems? And Chris Wright said, Yes, we are, because uh, essentially, for a long time, people just continued to push for the concept of virtualization, and so it was easy to sell virtualization. But within the last year, within the last two years, Docker and other competing container technologies have taken off in such a way that people are very skeptical about virtualizing an entire another operating system just to run a small stack. And so obviously, it, when you ask which is it, which is more secure, it, it, it kind of depends on what your workflow is, right? Because if your workflow is, I'm just going to install it, I'm going to let it run, well then yes, you're going to probably be better off running individual Docker containers inside of, a, inside of a bare metal because now you only have one system to update, you only have one system to maintain, and as long as you're performing updates on that, on that single system, you're going to have the best security practices possible on a bare metal system with VMs, or with, excuse me, with uh, with containers. Now, if you wanted to go the extra step and you say uh, security is paramount to me, um, is it more secure to have individual VMs running on top of a hypervisor and then uh, maintaining the security on all of those VMs? Well, yes, because if one VM becomes compromised, they don't have access to the entire system. The highest they can go is the writ directory of that single system. Now, there are plenty of security mechanisms in place to try to contain the Docker system, but at the end of the day, you are increasing your threat vector, right? Because now you have you know five IPs on the internet instead of one. You have five machines that have to be updated instead of one. You have five firewall rules to set to to maintain instead of one. So it really depends on how hands-on or hands-off you want to be um, with your administration. If 
if you if you say, hey, this is something that's fun and I enjoy doing maintenance every week and I, I, that would be a fun thing or I'm going to script it or I'm going to try out my, my new puppet skills or whatever, I would tell you to go ahead and split that up into various VMs. If you told me I'm just going to set it up in a server and I might touch it once a year, I would tell you probably uh, probably just stick to bare metal stuff. I tend to split things up into VMs because I move them around from one virtual host to the other, right? Which is technically possible in conta- with container technology, but... Um, the the idea primarily with containers are they're designed to be spun up and destroyed, not necessarily transported from one system to the other. Whereas a VM is specifically designed to be spun up, it it works in its own little environment, and then you can move that environment from one virtual host to another. Well, my two requirements are one, I want to run it all in ZFS because that's what I've been doing. Sure. And two, I basically do all my configuration management in Ansible. Oh yeah, you uh, yeah you want to do VMs? So I figured. Out. You want to do okay. VMs. If you're if you're that hands-on, uh, you're going to be better off with VMs, and it's going to give you more flexibility and control. Okay. My second question is, uh, that sounds great. So basically, I'll be running uh, something like Proxmox or Ubuntu is bare metal, and then in that run VMs, mm-hmm. and in the VMs, I'll be running like Podman or whatever. So I could run something like maybe like Fedora Core OS or something as in the VM. Sure. So I could take advantage of like SE Linux or the... Okay. So my second question was... Uh, uh, so, you know, all, my servers all send emails automatically to, I use mailbox.org for my email mm-hmm. service to when, you know, there's a problem or, you know, when it does like the scrub once a week, things like that. And I was wondering, I've, I've been trying to do some research and I haven't been able to find one, if there is a, you know, a lot of people use PostFix or MSMTP uh, just as like a, uh, basically a send mail on their server. And I can't find one that does uh, uh, PGP that encrypts the mm. message before it sends it out because... You know, some of the information it's sending, I just don't want going plain text over the internet. You know, that is a great point. It's it's amazing to me that I've been working in this industry for you know twenty some years, and I've not, and nobody has ever brought that up before because that's a great idea. Uh, the way that we have typically handled secure communication of data metrics from servers is the server speak SNMT era. Uh, I'm going to forget the the acronym, but SM SNMP. Uh, messages on the on a trusted network that is secure and obviously it's an admin vlan that only those servers and administrators have access to then typically what happens is you have something like zabbix that sucks all that information up and then zabbix being a, a system that is built with encryption and you know you've got ssl in place to log into the web ui and, and those kinds of things that then becomes the place where you know zabbix may send an alert and say there's something up with one of your servers log into the portal and, and find out more information um, and then you would log in and get the rest of the information but uh, there probably is a way i mean i'm sure you could script it to you know to uh, to encode with gpg and then send the encoded message out and then you'd have the private key to decode so there, there probably is a way to do it if you hacked around with it enough i've just never seen it done that way anytime i've seen uh information that is uh, potentially confidential or um or you know uh, privileged information that's coming off of systems typically that's stored in some sort of central monitoring system and then we uh, we we secure the the threat vector from that central monitoring station instead of try- because the, the issue with email uh right is that it's not it was never really designed to be secure um, and so we've essentially right. we've molded and mended it like taffy for for 25 years, trying to pull it along and drag it into 2019, um, and use it for things it was just never really designed to do. I've got a second box. I was planning on running Zabbix, Jenkins, and like Ansible AWX yep. on. So I guess I could hit, use that. 
mm-hmm. and send the messages out. Uh, and if it, at least if it has TLS, the message will at least be encrypted from server to server. I just Correct. because uh, Mailbox supports PGP, I thought it would be nice if the messages were encrypted when they arrived there. So, you know, data, the data at rest with the messages were encrypted. Sure. I'll have to see if I can script that. Yeah, if you do, call me back. because uh, I, I, I wasn't sure if there was something that did it by default. Yeah, if there is, I'm not aware of it. But like I said, it's a really excellent thought. So I'd be interested in hearing. So if you, if you don't mind, give me a call back if you get that scripted. And if you're willing to share the script, I, I would certainly love to promote it. Lou calls from Connecticut. Hey, Lou, welcome into the Ask Noah show. Hey, Noah, what's going on? Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Um, so I had a question about, uh, so I just got myself a brand new ThinkPad X395. Yes! Do you um, like it? And um, I like it. I'm just, I'm not as in love as I thought I'd be. Okay. Um, I'm coming from a T430S, which I, I heard you talking about last week. And, uh, and I loved my T430S, which mm-hmm. is why I'm like, I got to stick with ThinkPads because I love the keyboard. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the one thing I don't like about the X395 is because the keyboard's a little bit smaller than the T430S. Okay. And, uh, it's a little stiffer, so I'm having a lot of problems with, uh, and I'll, I'll go to press a key and it doesn't actually register. Um, so I'm going to give it a couple more weeks and see if I can get used to it. You know, um, I, 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 I don't mean to, inter- I don't mean to, inter- I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I would, I would, I would stick it out for a little bit because if I remember right, the 395 has the same keyboard as the X1. And I remember when I first got my X1, it was almost a year ago. Uh, and I came from the 270. I hated it at first. I thought the keys were too crisp. I thought they were too, uh, recessed in. And I, yeah, and I, yeah. I, so, so I didn't like it at all. And I went to use my X270 two nights ago or three nights ago and I couldn't stand the keyboard. I just couldn't stand it. This new one, it it takes a little bit to get used to, but it holds up so much better, and it, it stays more consistent. My 270, the keys started to get spongy, and they would kind of get shiny on the top, so it was, the, I don't know, it's not really wearing out, but just you could tell that it had been heavily used, and it felt heavily used. And the X1, it's almost a year old, and when I sit down to type on it, it types now like it did when I first pulled it out of the box, and I believe the 395 has the same keyboard. So yeah, I I, I, I would say stick with it a little bit, and, and you might that might turn around on you. Okay. Uh, sorry, I yeah, didn't mean to interrupt. I'm thinking the same thing, um, but I don't know. I mean, that's I mean, part part of the reason I called was kind of ask you about that um, because the, the problem, some of the problem was I'd go back to the T430 and I'd say, oh, this is kind of nicer. Should I just stick with the T430 and then sell this? But and mm-hmm. I'd like to have a newer ThinkPad with USB-C charging and you know some new things that I was kind of right. missing out on. So I'm definitely going to stick it out. Um, but the one problem I am having, so I'm using uh, Kubuntu, which is my go-to stable distro. You know, it's. I, I know my way around it, yep. um, but I'm Mine having too. problems with the touchpad. Um, oh, I can, so yeah, touchpad, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I already know where this is going. Um, uh, so the bottom left is a left click. Yep. The bottom right is a right click. Yep. And then anywhere in the middle third registers as a middle click. Yep. And when I go to the touchpad settings in Kubuntu, everything's grayed out. Correct. So here's um, the, here's, so I, can't, I yep. can't even disable that. So here's the, here's the thing. I'm so excited to get this question. You have no idea. When I pulled my X1 out of my, out of the case, I, I never talked about this on the air because I didn't want to give ThinkPad a review for my stupidity. Um, but. Well, that was a terrible way to set this up. Uh, I apologize. Anyway, the, 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 uh, so, I, so I, I pull it out of the box, and I install Kubuntu just like you did, and I can't get the thing to boot. just doesn't boot right. I, I do a complete reinstall. I'm, I'm Googling around. I can't figure it out. Finally, I find out there's an option in the BIOS that says this computer has Windows installed, and if you toggle it, it says this w- computer has Linux installed. I did that. All of a sudden, all the boot issues went away. I was having trouble going in and coming out of standby. All of that went away. 
I would have an issue where the whole machine would just lock up and I would have to restart it. That went away instantaneously just by changing the BIOS. Then I started using it and I ran into the exact same thing that you're running into with the trackpad. I don't like tap to click, but if I turned off tap to click, I couldn't right click at all. And it was like, it wasn't it, the options that were showing up, just like you said, they're great. They're ghosted and you can't actually configure the system the way you want to configure it. The problem ended up being I had to install the uh, Synaptics uh, Xorg I- input. And uh, I'll put a, a link to the uh, in the show notes. But in case there's anybody out there that's listening to this and they're and they're sitting at their computer, sudo apt-get install xserver-xorg-input-all xserver-xorg-input-evdev xserver-xorg-input-synaptics. If you install those three packages, uh, your trackpad will work exactly like your uh, your 430 did, and I'll I'll put a link in the in the show notes to to this uh, to that specific command and exactly that, that by the way took me three four hours to dig up on the internet because everybody when you Google it trackpad problem on ThinkPad everybody has a different solution and none of them work. Um, this was the first one that I I got to and I I I ran this command and so I fixed this on my ThinkPad and I was super excited because it literally made the trackpad respond exactly the way that all of my previous ThinkPad trackpads had responded. And then I found out that if you don't use the default ISO for a Dell XPS, it suffers from the exact same problem. So they must have similar trackpads or at least similar drivers. And if you install this particular package on the Dell XPS line, if you're not using the default ISO, you get same trackpad performance on the XPS as well. So if anybody is having trouble with their touchpad, trackpad, tap to click, all of that, I would suggest giving this a shot. And and like I said, I'm throwing a link in the show notes and I'm actually pasting it in here right now so I don't forget because I've been there with your frustration. Awesome. Thanks, Noah. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at com. We'd love to have you joining us. So Dr. Andy Yen uh, has come out to correct some infor- misinformation that is going around. Now, I think it's a pretty sad state of affairs, to be honest with you, when the Ask Noah show has to go and correct Bloomberg. I, I spend all week prepping the show. I come in here and set the show up. I do the show. I edit the show. I publish the show. I promote the show. And then I do it all over again. And, and, and if I can come across this information and spend f- three minutes reading through what, th- what Proton Mail is publishing, it baffles me that large news organizations like Bloomberg can't get this right. So September 5th, Proton Mail comes out and publishes a blog post talking about alternatives to Android. As you might be well familiar, if you listen to this show for the last three, four weeks, I've been talking about various alternatives to keep your data private. Now, I have settled on Sailfish OS as my companion device. I have my Sailfish device right here. I'm doing the show off of it. I wrote the show notes on it. I'm going to publish the show on it. I absolutely love this thing. So I'm excited to see that other organizations are trying to provide support for alternatives to Android and iOS. September 5th, they published this blog post talking about how they'd like to push their app to other platforms because let's be honest android is an imperfect solution to a problem that has existed for a long time and as geeks we have just kind of tolerated the android solution because we haven't come up with anything better well there are better alternatives out there now one of which is sailfish os which again i'm using full-time as a companion device but i was excited to and i'm also excited to check out the purism phone and the pine phone both of which we'll talk about later in the episode but they are trying to publish their app in addition to Google Play services, they want to publish to F-Droid, 
the Samsung Galaxy Store, the Amazon App Store, and the Huawei and App Gallery. Now, let me ask you something. If I were to tell you that the Ask Noah show was going to write an app and publish it in the Google Play Store, how many of you would come to me and say that you're upset that I have formed a partnership with Google to distribute my show? By the way, if any of you raised your hand, (laughs) uh, well... Rude comments. Let's just leave it at that. They haven't even made a final decision on what 30 third-party stores they want to support. Okay? Now, I, I, you know, I'll just throw this out there. You guys might want to consider the Yellow Store. And if you don't want to consider the Yellow Store, at least maybe consider the Storeman repo. Let the community throw out a uh, a package that we can use so we can use ProtonMail on on uh, Sailfish OS and we don't have to just report the, the Android device. I mean, the reality is my understanding is, and I'm not a developer, but my understanding is, because if you were to write an app in Qt, it would run just fine on Sailfish, and you would be able to port that fairly easily to both Android and uh, Sailfish, which means it would also run on Android and probably very well in the Samsung Galaxy Store, the Amazon Store, and the Huawei App Gallery, right? So consider Yala, please. But Bloomberg publishes this article a day after that says that Proton Mail was taking talking to Huawei about a potential partnership. Now. This is offensive to me in a number of different ways, not only because we've had Dr. Andy on the show and I find him to be a man of great integrity and somebody who is doing something amazing for people that want to own their data and secure their privacy. This Bloomberg article essentially attacks their brand. It's a shot at their brand. It's nothing short of that. That headline to say that they're in a partnership with Huawei. There is no partnership here. There's never been a partnership here. And the problem with phrasing it as a partnership is it undermines the very reason that people pay for ProtonMail. And the reason that people pay and use ProtonMail is because they want to get away from their mail provider or some any service provider that can, that has potentially personal identifiable information and they're storing it on their servers or in their services. People pay because ProtonMail is only loyal to their users. They're not loyal to any one company. And they do have an ideal set. And it's one of the reasons that we promote them here on the Ask Noah Show. It's one of the reasons that I have a uh, my, my primary email these days is hosted with ProtonMail. Because they're a great company that care about privacy. And so to, to publish these wildly inaccurate uh, stories and headlines about a partnership that doesn't exist, I think is not only irresponsible, but I think is potentially very damaging to ProtonMail. And so they were quick to respond and come back out and say, hey, this is not, this is not accurate at all. Uh, saying that ProtonMail is in partnership with Huawei is no more accurate than saying that ProtonVPN or ProtonMail has partnered with Google or Apple because those, those apps are available in their respective stores. Quote, as stated above and also in our original post, our discussions with Huawei are about continuing to make ProtonMail available to users who have Huawei devices. Today, ProtonMail is already available on Huawei as an Android app and is distributed on Huawei devices through the Google Play services. So in terms of supporting Huawei devices, there is no change from the current situation. Now, that didn't stop the Internet. Of course, people had to continue on. So some people have started to express concerns that the Chinese government may be getting involved. And perhaps the Chinese government may put pressure on ProtonMail to somehow compromise their services or the privacy that they provide to their devices. So the relevant statute here is or the relevant uh, applicable Chinese law 
is uh, what's known as the China Internet Security Law, which came into effect in 2017. Now, the law basically says that foreign companies which operate inside of China and process private information of Chinese citizens, they have to store that data in China and then make it available to the Chinese authorities upon request. Now, you might be sitting in your chair and saying, well, that does it. That sounds like the Chinese have control over proton mail because if they're doing business in China, that means if a Chinese person signs up for proton mail and the government wants their data, proton mail has to comply, right? Wrong. Uh, quote, proton mail does not have offices, employees, or subsidiaries or any permanent establishment in China or Russia for that matter. And if the authorities in either of these countries considered us to be within the law's scope, these laws cannot be enforced against us. Indeed, this is what happened in Russia in 2018 when the Federal Service for the Supervision of Communication attempted to apply the Russian law to proton mail. With the threat being banned from Russia if we did not comply, in this case, we politely declined to comply on the grounds that we don't operate in Russia. Any requests that fall outside of Swiss law will be politely refused. Again, Proton Mail is taking a stand for users' privacy. Again, Proton Mail is making the right decisions. And this really shows the vision that Dr. Andy Yen has. And it's why I'm excited to promote his product. And it's why I'm excited to promote him as a good leader of this project. But it's important to me that we correct stuff like this because information that gets out where they say they're in partnership with Huawei, or even if it was they were in partnership with Google or Apple, uh, to me would be a big deal. If they were actually in an official partnership in which Google had some sort of say over the service of Proton Mail or Proton VPN, if the Chinese government had some say over Proton Mail or Proton VPN, it would make me trust them less. I don't trust governments for the most part, and I don't think they have the citizens' best interest in mind as it relates to privacy. And so I think that this provides it's, – it's highly complex. So I was happy to see that Proton – and again, this is a great example – of a company who does a phenomenal job at just speaking normal English, talking to people directly and saying, hey, here's the problem, here's the misinformation, here's the correct information, now let's move on. And that's exactly what they did, and kudos to them, and thank you for providing an amazing service. Thank you for continuing to care about users' privacy and stand up for those things and clear up misinformation where it comes. And shame on you, Bloomberg, for running a clickbaity headline article that is factually inaccurate. I want to tell you guys about a great app that I came across this week. It's GMTP. Now, if you're not familiar with GMTP, it's a GUI app specifically to communicate with MTP devices. What is an MTP device, you might ask? An Android phone operating in MTP mode, a small MP3 player functioning in MTP mode, uh, my Sailfish OS device functions in MTP mode, and basically it is a way to com- for the computer to communicate with the file system of a media player. It's great for moving music. It's great for moving media from your computer to your phone. And what I like about it is it's a very private uh, device. I I told you last week, one of the things I loved most about Sailfish OS was the fact that it's actually based on Linux. And that means that all of the tools and and resources that I have available to me in a typical Linux distro are available to me on Sailfish OS. And so if I want to move a file, if I want to copy something, if I want to sync a directory, I can use rsync, I can use SCP. Uh, I can just pull the SD card out and plug it into my laptop, decrypt it with Lux, and drop all my files on there. Functions just like a tiny little laptop would. But you know what? That can be kind of inconvenient, number one. Number two, then I have to break my my offline mode. You know, if I've got the device and it's it's functioning perfectly well offline and I'm doing notes or or playing music or whatever, and I just want to put some new information on there and I don't want it on the internet 24-7, 
GMTP has turned out to be a great way to move media back and forth. And so you can install GMTP if you want, to, like me, to move data privately between two devices. Uh, GMTP, essentially, it makes me feel like I'm back in the old Palm Pilot days or the old iPod days where you could sync an offline device with the data that you wanted to have on it. So I have to worry about keeping my laptop up to date. And I have to worry about applying you know, security uh, things to my laptop. But when it comes to the phone, I don't have to worry so much. I can, if I update once a week or once every two weeks, it's fine because it's really not online all that much. It's a companion device. So when I want to get online and look something up or when I want to go get online and, and have a conversation with a messenger or something like that, I'll do that. But just, I don't have to, I don't have to break my internet, my internet absence, I guess, as it were, just to pull some new MP3s down. And so I, I'm really liking GMTP. And the other thing that I think is really nice that, that doing it through the Linux command line doesn't, doesn't do perfectly is, when you do rsync or scp there are some ownership issues that you kind of run into again it gives you full access to the linux system it doesn't necessarily mean that the folks at yala intended you to use it that way right and so when you're rsyncing folders down from a server driver you're scping files over ssh it it doesn't necessarily mean that the phone is going to like it so i've run into some permissions issues and some owner issues and stuff like that and they're fairly straightforward to sort out you just look at what the other files are and and change appropriately but if you're a noob or if you're somebody that doesn't like getting their hands dirty, then GMTP is a great way to move media between your device. And you don't have to be on Selfish OS. You can use it with Android. You can uh, use it with any device that supports the MTP mode. So I'd invite you to check that out. Speaking of phones, the Pine phone is real. The prototype for the Pine phone PCBs and chassis have been produced and undergone, as the writer puts it, extensive testing. Now, they've made the decision to manufacture a small batch of Pine phones for developers. Let me tell you something. The way that these guys are going about manufacturing a phone is the way that everybody that wants to make a third-party phone wants to make a competitor to Android or iOS, which it seems like we have a new one every six months. This is the plan that you should follow. This is the protocol you should follow. You should see what these people are doing, and you should mimic it. Purism, are you listening? They are scheduled for a larger production run. And that will be open to early adopters later this year. So they're setting the bar very low. If you're a developer, if you're somebody that wants to play with a prototype so you can start getting your app ready, you can start modifying the OS, you can start learning about the phone so that you can sell it to your customers or design your product around it or whatever, they're going to provide you with access to that system to do so. You're not going to pay anything for it. They're just, well, you're going to pay for the small batch of, of Pine phones that are available for developers, but you're not, you're not pre-buying you're not paying for their development cycle you're just buying these developer devices so that you can learn how to develop on the thing then they're going to schedule two larger production runs and those are going to be open to the earliest of early adopters and then those people will have the opportunity to purchase one of those early production runs but it's going to be a full production run and then the first pine phones uh will enter and start shipping later this month so notice what they've done here they've controlled their timetable such that they have planned they have planned this for years and finally they're coming to the execution date and they step up and say okay well now it's time to start moving these out let's get the developer units out to the developers we're a month away so let's start getting the ball rolling and let's start getting people involved but they waited until they were almost to the end of that process and and, and funding all of this stuff themselves and then on top of that they are doing all sorts of advocacy things to close the digital divide. We'll get to that in just a moment. But the Pine Phone prototypes, 
uh, will ship to developers later this month, eight months since their announcement. So they've planned for years. They got within the last eight months, and then they said, okay, here is the thing. Let's go ahead and do this, and let's go ahead and get these phones sh- shipped out. Nunix says in the chat room, for what it's worth, Evil Dragon has been more transparent with the production and lifestyle of Pine64. Uh, I'd greatly prefer more people follow his example. Pine, the, the Pine people in general, I guess, just have established a reputation in the community of being honest and forthcoming. So I, I just, you know, which product specifically and which person is in, in charge of which product specifically, I'm not going to dig into that. All, I'll, all I will say is that I think they are doing a fantastic job of communicating exactly what they want, setting the expectations at a realistic level, promising less and delivering more. I think they are following those three rules to the T, and I think it's working very well for them. And evidence of that is seen anytime you go on a forum talking about the new Pine phone. Everybody is excited about it. And the reason that everybody is excited about it is because they're doing a great job explaining what you get and setting expectations up. So the Pine phone shipping for the Pine phone shipping timeline for 2019 uh, and, and the 2020 large production run are all going to be released and available. Um, they have some more specifications on exactly what you get with the dev kit and what kind of uh, build, build uh, devices there are and processors and all that kind of jazz. But they are, in addition to that, they are closing the digital divide. And this is something that I think is very interesting because it's not something that I pay a lot of attention to, but I acknowledge that it is a real problem and I'm glad that somebody is. Money from the sales of soft cases for the Pine Phone are going to be funneled into production for the original 11.6 Pine Books for those in need of a computer. That's so cool for a number of reasons. First of all, because they're going to get more people on Linux. They're going to get people on Linux that don't have, uh, wouldn't, if it wasn't for Linux and, and companies like Pine who are making devices like the Pinebook, they wouldn't have access to technology. So I think they're doing a great job that way. I also think they really, really understand their customer base, which is something I think that Librem struggles with, right? The kind of people that are interested in a Pine phone are the kind of people that are okay with hacking, but they expect a reasonably high quality product to be delivered if you expect them to pay for it. And so if you're going to cut some corners or if you're trying to make a device that is is not the creme de la creme, is not the MacBook of laptops, then it needs to come with a corresponding price tag. And guess what the Pinebook has done very well of? Coming with not the price tag of a MacBook. Uh, so is it a is it a MacBook quality device? Probably not. Is it a ThinkPad quality device? Probably not. Is are you absolutely getting every dime of your value when you're when you're spending two, three, four hundred dollars? Yes, a hundred percent. It's why I would have loved to purchase the PineBook Pro the first two times, and I couldn't because they keep running out. So my next opportunity is in I, I believe in October. So we're going to go with that. What you'll notice is this entire communication process is open. They're not overpromising. It's not, hey, we're going to let you know when something comes out. It's not, hey, we want your money now, and then we'll figure something out. They are announcing a timeline after they're already shipping prototypes to developers, after they've already proved that they have a track record, that they have a product that's going to succeed, that they're on the path to success. Once they have done that, now they come out and actually uh, announce a timeline because they're within eight months of production. That's a very responsible thing to do. And notice the audience, the Linux open source community is very willing to go along that with that roller coaster. P- 
people don't mind a roller coaster, especially tech enthusiasts, because we understand how some of these things come up. Here's all we expect. We expect you to be open and honest about how high your roller coaster goes, how fast or slow it goes, and what the chances of falling off the roller coaster are. And if you're honest about those three things, nobody has a problem coming on your roller coaster, even if the roller coaster has some bumps along the way. And the Pine people have set themselves up perfectly for if something bad happens to the Pine phone and they can't make a delivery date or something doesn't happen, nobody will look back and say, well, it was because they were dishonest in their communication. Um, they've been very open and transparent about exactly where they are in the process, and they're only asking for something after they have a reasonable expectation that something is going to be delivered. If you're told that your product is going to be delivered from China in eight months, I think it's a very reasonable thing to go to your customers and say, okay, now it's safe to start asking for developer kits. Now it's start to safe to start to consider to purchase one because we believe that the devices are coming in. And if China fails to deliver for any reason, I think the vast majority of us are going to go, oh, well. You know what? For the most part, they, they, they keep their word. And so if, if something, if, if one thing falls through the cracks, that's fine. Communication here is key. And I want to point out a difference between the Pine phone and Librem in just a moment. Steve calls from Kansas. Hey, Steve, you're on Ask Noah. Welcome into the program. Hey, thanks for taking the call. Yeah, you bet. Say, um, I've got a free NAS server already. Mm-hmm. And I am looking to set up an instance of NextCloud, and I'd like the data for the NextCloud server to live on the FreeNAS box. And so the question comes to my mind, do I want to run FreeNAS or run NextCloud on the FreeNAS server using a plugin, or do I want to set it up as a separate server and maybe like a NFS mount um, a file system for the data? Do you have an opinion on that? I will tell you what I will do, and then I'll tell you why what I would do is a bad idea. I would go the NFS route for for two reasons. One is there is nobody, and I mean nobody, that knows more about ZFS and the upkeep than IX systems. And so having an appliance-based package that they produce to run ZFS on is, the to me, seems like a really smart way to go. Can I set ZFS up on Linux? Absolutely. It's like three commands. Do I trust that my understanding of ZFS and the setup of my, of the way that I would set up ZFS is equivalent or in any way competes with what IX systems can do with FreeNAS? Not a chance. Um, so that's what I would do. I would have a dedicated file server that's ju- it has it has you know drives that are specifically designed for storing data long term. Those in my case are going to be Western Digital Reds. It's going to be a, a you know a dedicated box with enough RAM to handle the the kind of Data transfers that I need to handle, all of those things I'm going to pay attention to. Now, here's why it's a bad idea. If, let's say, you have an NFS mount and on an, on a NextCloud server, and for whatever reason, the NextCloud server boots up and can't access that NFS share, now your all of your syncing directories have one node in the cluster that says a directory that used to exist is no longer there. And I've not tried this specific scenario, so I can't tell you for sure how this would work out. But my guess is, I can tell you this is how it would work with C-File. My guess is what would happen is you would start to erase files on the rest of your NextCloud instances. If the NFS mount can't mount for any reason, I believe what NextCloud is going to do is say, oh, those files are deleted. Here, everybody sync down. We deleted those files. Get rid of them. Um, it's possible NextCloud does not respond the same way that C-File does uh, to to a change like that where a directory is completely missing. And C-File has 
uh, added a warning now where when you install the C file or C hub server, it actually tells you, hey, don't put this on a network file share because you have you run the risk of not having your data available if this NFS share doesn't mount. Now, in our case, what we did was we hacked together a script so that the C hub server would only run after we could verify the NFS mount uh, succeeded. And so that's kind of how we're getting around that problem, but it's not the recommended way to do it. And it's from all the people that understand syncing solutions, it's not a good way to do it either. Um, the way that I look at it is I, I understand where they're coming from and I understand what the concern is. I just don't like the fact that the rest of the enterprise IT world accepts the fact that we build network attached storage and SANS for the express purpose of consolidating storage into one place and then making that a storage available to anybody or any resource that wants to use it on the network. And we deviate from that, that workflow just because we're dealing with file syncing. And so it, to me, I like splitting them up, but the, the recommended way is going to be to have the, the data stored on the same box and perhaps use something like the next cloud plugin on FreeNAS, uh, which probably is not a bad way to go. It's just, uh, there's something about running my an entire server inside of a plugin, especially something as complicated as Nextcloud. That you know, if, if you're going to do calendar syncing and context syncing and file syncing, and that's a lot of stuff just to run on a on a you know on a plugin. So, but that would be the recommended way to do it. Okay. Well, yeah, that was part of my question is is, is whether the plugin, um, you know, really gives you all of the Nextcloud features, or if there's some limitations or or issues with that, and um, I suppose if anybody had any experience with that, it'd be good good to know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now that this call has aired, there there'll undoubtedly be people writing in, going, "Either don't do that. I borked my next cloud instance by doing that," or there's going to be people writing in that said, "I've done that for years, and there's nothing to worry about." So I, I guess you and I will find out together. But uh, if you decide to go the route of NFS, what I would suggest is putting some dummy files into a machine, manually unmounting that NFS, starting uh, starting NextCloud, and just see what happens, just so that you know what's going to happen. And of course, with as with any data thing, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you that you know, no matter what you do, good backups are key because NextCloud is not a backup solution. So back your data up, and then it won't shouldn't really matter. But it's my guess is it's not a great practice. All right. Well, that's uh, that's a valid point, and I'll definitely check that out if I decide to go that route. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. 855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. So let's contrast the Pine, uh, the Pine phone with Purism. So Purism began its iterative shipping schedule for the most anticipated Librem 5 running Pure OS. Now, they made a statement, quote, due to the high volume growing demand for the Librem 5, and the interest in openness and transparency, Purism is publishing its full detailed iterative shipping schedule. This extends the existing commitment to start shipping by Q3 by defining specific batches, their features, and their corresponding ship dates. Most companies keep their releases and product plans secret right up until mass production launch so they can avoid publicizing any setbacks or delays. But we decided to bring the community and our customers along with us for the Librem 5 journey and have been transparent from the progress from the beginning. Okay, a couple things there. First of all, just because you say 15 times in an article that you're transparent doesn't make you transparent. Second of all, if you wanted to say we're releasing our schedules on how far we are without asking anyone for money, that's fine. That's being transparent. Hey, when we have a device ready that you can buy, we'll let you know. That would be a transparent thing to do. Here's what's not transparent. It's not transparent. It's not bringing your customers along for the roller coaster ride when you say, 
hey, buy this phone and we'll deliver it by this date. Oh, we're not going to make that date. So instead, what we're going to do is you have an option. We'll ship you a incomplete phone for the same price that you paid for the completed phone. And we'll deliver that on the date we promised you the, the completed phone. Or you can wait X amount of months. And then we'll, we might hopefully we'll try to deliver the completed phone at the time that we promised you that we would. Well, later than the time that we would del- we would promise you that we would deliver the completed phone at the price that you paid for the completed phone. Like, it, it's so confusing to try to mentally step through that. And the mental gymnastics that you have to do to arrive at this is them being transparent is quite frankly frustrating. Um, I don't have a problem with purism. I don't have a problem with Todd. I like what they're doing. I like the fact that there's competition in both the mobile sphere and in the laptop sphere. I think we need more of them. I really like the idea of a class A Linux laptop that is designed from the ground up to be privacy conscious because frankly, there isn't another product out there like that. The people that value privacy tend to be on 15 year old ThinkPads and that's where you get the Stallman like computer. So I get where they're coming from to a certain degree. I just think once again, they misunderstand their audience. This might work if you're Apple and your device is delayed by a couple of months and so you offer a consolidation prize of hey we'll give you the you know the the you know the the half done phone or the prototype or whatever for the price maybe that works if you're apple and you have a large fan base um when it comes to people like us the vast majority in the tech community do not have $600 to blow on a toy they don't have $600 to blow on your prototype so when they buy a phone and they are told to have a set of expectations, you need to meet those expectations because people paid for that. And if you can't deliver on that, then open and honest transparency looks something like this. Hey guys, we promised that we were going to have a device ready by this time. It's not ready by this time. We're very sorry about that and we will try to do better and we'll let you know when that device is ready. If you'd like a refund, here's the opportunity to do that. I have a different approach. I, When we suffer delays, he's right. He's absolutely right when they say that... W- Companies typically don't release their product plans uh, uh, until the production launch because they don't want setbacks to be public. And that's true, but that's a good marketing thing. That's not something you should fight. That doesn't make you more transparent. That makes you bad at marketing. If you don't, if, if you, if you're not ready to actually produce a product coming out and, and just keeping your mouth shut until you are, that's just good marketing. Don't air your dirty laundry. Don't show people how, because you start to look incompetent, right? All these other places, when they announce a product, eight months later, they're delivering a product. Then there's you and you announce a product and then you fumble around for a year. And then finally, you kind of sort of haphazardly deliver a product. It's a bad marketing strategy. So don't do that. I'm not going as far as to say this is malicious. I'm just saying it's not very smart. And when you compare the Pine OS phone, just go on, go on forums, go on Reddit, Go on the internet and just look at people. What people are saying about the Pine OS phone and the Purism phone. Arguably, very compa- very comparable products. Arguably, very comparable situations. And one is getting a ton of attention and has a ton of positive press, and the other one is filled with a bunch of people that are angry and disappointed. Why is that? You're setting people's expectations too high, and you're failing to deliver. And you need to readjust those people's expectations. And you can do that a couple of ways. You can either be more actually honest and transparent in that, hey, we don't have a design yet. We're not sure that this is going to ship. We don't know exactly when the product is going to ship. But if you'd like to back us, we'd love to take your money. And we will deliver you a product, a quality product, exactly what we promise. We just can't tell you exactly when. That would be an open and honest, transparent way to go. You could say, hey, here is the, what we're doing. 
we don't we're not offering it for sale yet because it would be irresponsible since we don't have a timeline but we want to be open and honest and we want to be more transparent than other companies so we're going to publish our timelines and you can watch as the delays occur or don't occur and we'll let you know as soon as they're we're ready to build a product that would be an open and transparent way to go but delivering a subpar device on the date that you promise somebody a full device and and just saying that makes us open and transparent because we take people along with our rides up and down no Mumble has gotten its first release in almost 10 years. Now, the new features, this is Mumble 1.3.0, and they include a number of really cool things, some of which we're going to incorporate here right on the Ask Noah show. A new light and dark theme. Man, if I haven't stopped using applications because they don't support dark themes, I, I don't know why. If you, if you don't want me to use your application, make sure you don't have a dark theme. That's going to be awesome. Uh, individual user volume adjustments. The number one reason we don't do more mumble interaction on this show is because we are held to different standards than most podcasts. We have a mandated FCC noise floor, which means the the the, the difference in volume level from a complete ambient silence to when we're talking has to be within a certain threshold. And that's very difficult to enforce on Mumble. We have a very complicated, very expensive broadcast phone system that was donated by Vox Telesis uh, that does that when we take phone calls. Um, and we don't have that for Mumble. So I essentially, we only tend to take people in Mumble that we that have an established track record of being able to have high quality audio. And then I manually have to ride the fader, which of course only works if I'm actually in the studio because most of the producers that step in here when I'm not here aren't familiar with how to uh, to ride that. So individual user volume adjustment means that we can start to use mumble more. So that's a big thing for us. Bindable shortcut for changing transmission modes. How many of you have been using mumble and you have voiced, uh, you know, uh, um, voice activated uh, talking on um, and you, you start talking and then you realize you want to have a conversation with somebody else that's in the room or you want to play music or whatever. And so you have to go into the settings and change it. Well, now that's going to be a hot toggleable key. So you can go from push to talk, um, to, to, to voice activated speaking. And I think that's going to be a major thing for me. It's going to allow me to be in mumble more often for sure. Optional toolbar for entry to select transmission mode. So if you don't want a hot key, if you just want to open up the app and click into things, you're going to be able to do that. A filter to hide empty channels every single week. Every single week that I come in here, the first thing I do is scan all of the all of the mumble channels to see where people are and invite them to come if and join the show if they've been there before and I, and I haven't seen them in unless it sounds like they're having a conversation or something like that. But I scan all of those channels because you never know where somebody is lurking or hiding out. So the ability to just say if nobody's in there, I don't even want to see the channel. That's fantastic. Lower volume of others while you talk using priority speaker. Right now, the way that mumble is set up is we force everybody to use push to talk except for my machine here at the studio, which is on uh, constant transmit. And the idea there is that you guys can hear the intro music. You guys can hear phone callers. You guys can hear me. You guys can hear clips that we play without anything cutting in or out on mumble. Um, the downside to that is while you're talking, you have essentially a feedback loop because if you're not using a headset, um, you know, sound is going to come out of your speakers back into your microphone and feed back to us here at the studio. And so the ability to lower the, uh, lower the talking me or lower the volume of the, of other people when the priority speaker is on, uh, means that that fixes that problem and potentially anybody could have, uh, the voice activated talking because it's automatically going to do ducking and stuff. And they're going to use pulse audio monitor devices as input, which means that you're going to be able to play something like out of audacity right back into mumble, which is going to be huge for small time podcasters that maybe don't have access to an IP based broadcast council. Like we have here. 
uh, synchronous multi-channel recording. So you are going to be able to record individual people while we're in the channel, which if we were producing the show a different way would be hugely beneficial to us because each user would come out on their own recording. And obviously they're going to make some improvements uh, with the admin function, including the user list and ban list, something that if you're not in our admin telegram group, um, then you probably wouldn't know much about. But probably every week we get somebody requesting that they get a new certificate or that they we have to ban somebody because they're in here making trouble or whatever it is. Um, so those improvements in the admin side are going to be massive. If you're looking for a VoIP solution that's open source, end to end, Mumble is absolutely the way to go. It takes less than 10 minutes to set up. You can set up your server. It's very easy to administrate. Even if you don't have any experience administrating a Mumble server in the past, or any server for that matter, give, I believe the server is actually called Murmur, give Murmur a shot, and uh, and you can check that out. It's an absolute great way to go. It's also a great way to have a conversation with family or friends. We have an internal Mumble server that we use for work, and uh, we're looking at potentially spinning a one up directly for the Ask Noah show that'll have conversation going 24-7. So that may happen in the future. Keep an eye on that. If you want to find out what the latest, you follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. That's the best way to stay up to date in the loop and find out what's going on. This show happens every week, Tuesday at 6 p.m. I hope to hear you back. I see you back next week at Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com. Mm-hmm.